0: this is increment 315 of Hebrews 2020 we see Jesus and we are going to be considering a a section of Hebrews that begins with Hebrews 812 and goes all the way to 1018 and in 1019 structurally we see the beginning of a profoundly important exhortation which is not only Relevant and pertinent to the initial readers of Hebrews, but very pertinent to the 21st century readers. So, Father, we thank you for the pertinence and relevance of your word on the level of our own time. And we thank you that the word comes to us with impact and power that is able to edify, to strengthen, to save, to restore, to convert, and to give great hope and to Cause our hope to overflow by the comfort of the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit who causes that hope to overflow in us. We thank you for this privilege, therefore, give us attentiveness, grant us the attentive concept of being attentive to your word, which is so very basic and fundamental to Christian living. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. First of all, our subject will be generally the forgiveness of sins, which is generally the subject between Hebrews 8.12 all the way to Hebrews 10.18. And this is also the subject of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant, for the, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins many jesus said first of all i want to go over covered ground hebrews 9 9 the way into the holy place was being closed as long as the levitical cultus was going on which is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are being offered which are not able to perfect that means complete by thoroughly cleansing telea the consciousness of the one who offers them during the time in which this homily was presented this message was preached this epistle was written these things were still going on the little vertical cultus was still in vogue it was still being practiced and there was evidently a strong pull a gravitational pull downward for believers who were already in heavenly places to be dragged back into Something that would be redundant, and that is the old offerings offered under the Levitical cultists, which are not able to purify the consciousness of the worshiper completely. The partial and incomplete purgation of the conscience corresponds to the purification of the earthly copies or replicas of the heavenly or the true tabernacle. And those earthly replicas were purified only temporarily requiring repetition by the sacrifices offered under the law by the priests of the Aaronic order, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, meaning the order of Aaron, same as Levitical order. The complete purgation, that's teleao, of the conscience related to the purification of the things in the heavens, the true things, and by better sacrifices than these let me say that again the complete purgation or cleansing of the conscience is related to the purification of the things in the heavens the incomplete purgation or purification or cleansing of the consciousness from sin happens by the old testament sacrifices offered in the replica brought by the priest in the replica tent Whereas the full and complete cleansing of the consciousness from sins and from dead works comes from the definitive, once and for all, offering of Jesus Christ himself, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the pouring out of his blood, and then the offering of Jesus Christ, which is the sprinkling of his precious blood, like that of a lamb without blemish or Defect. 1 Peter one nineteen compared to Hebrews 9.14. Now there's something about that name. That's the next section of our teaching today. There's something about that name. Love that song too, and we sing it in our congregation, have and will again. Hebrews 9.24, going over covered ground. It's always important to go over covered ground because repetition is not, grievous for the true pastor teacher nor is it troublesome but it's safe and it means the salvation in time of the congregation so we'll do it covering the same ground in Hebrews nine twenty four. for Messiah that's Jesus did not enter a man-made sanctuary a mere replica of the true one but into heaven itself now in the ongoing present to appear before the face of God for us. That's my translation, which came through a painful and bloody entrance. Already in Hebrews 6, 19 to 20, where Jesus is used alone, the name Jesus, Yeshua, or Jesus is used alone, the teaching shepherd wrote that Jesus had entered for us, indicating divine primary. Jesus has entered for us into the sanctuary behind the curtain as a forerunner, a forerunner entering for us, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever, a priest forever, a priest forever. Linking Hebrews 6:19 to 20, therefore with Hebrews 9:24, we have the complete declaration, which constitutes our confession, that Jesus Christ has entered heaven itself. We know now that Jesus has entered as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Hebrews four fourteen, Hebrews one two to three, with His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews nine eleven to twelve. He entered with his own blood to offer himself because he had already found redemption in his sacrifice on the cross. We know that the sanctuary that he entered is heaven itself. It is the dimension of the cosmos where we have the location of God's throne. Isaiah 66, 1 Compared with Hebrews 8.1. Hebrews 9.24 uses the title Christ Christos alone with Jesus presupposed. The title Christ with the name Jesus presupposed. And he adds, quote, now in the ongoing present to appear before the face of God for us in our behalf, for our benefit, for our saving benefit. Virtually everywhere we look, God is for us. Jesus is for us. God determined himself to be God for us and no other God, as we learned by incorporating the doctrine of election into our exposition and theological exegesis of Hebrews. God's promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y. You can put, if you want to play with the word a little bit, P-R-O-M-E, pro me. God is for me, God is for you, God is for us. God's promiety or God's being for us as we saw it in Romans was expressed in the handing over of his son for us all as the Lamb of God, Romans 8, 31 to 32, and of course giving himself in the giving of his son. This promeity is ongoing throughout the time in between the two radical alterations in the form of Jesus' representation of us as our eternal arch. Priest our forever priest Hebrews 9 24 again, then let's look at it a little more carefully for Messiah Christos IE Jesus did not enter a man-made sanctuary a mere representation or replica of the true one But into heaven itself now in the ongoing present to appear before the face of God for us ongoing present indicates his foreverness Jesus Christ the same yesterday today and forever yesterday he was he who became sin for us today he is he who became sin for us forever he will be he who became sin for us christos is used alone nine times in the hebrews homily three six three fourteen five five six one nine eleven nine, 14, nine, 24, nine, 28, and eleven, twenty-six. this title is used in apposition that's a grammatical construction in which a noun is back to back with another noun which serves as an explanatory equivalent and so when we see the name christ jesus we understand that in christ in apposition with jesus that christ that is jesus christ the title messiah that is jesus the man christ jesus so with the word the title christos is used as an explanatory equivalent with jesus with the name jesus yes Yesu, Yesu, yes jesus jesus preceding the title christ or messiah anointed one three times in hebrews that's hebrews 10, 10 13 8 and 21 13 21. jesus christ jesus with christ used Three times in Hebrews, Hebrews ten, ten, thirteen, eight, twenty-one, 21, and 21. Four, a total of 12 uses of Christ in the homily. And so the name Jesus, yes, Jesus, appears in isolation nine times, that is, without the word Christos immediately attached. Hebrews two, nine, three, one, six, twenty, seven, twenty-two, ten, nineteen, twelve, two, twelve, twenty-four, thirteen, twelve, and 13.20. And that's, it's used in apposition with Christos, that is, back-to-back back with Christos, three times. In apposition with the Son of God once, Hebrews 4.14, which refers back to Hebrews 1.2. Yesus, you'll see all this in print as you would also in our grammatical analysis in increment 3.13 last Wednesday on All Saints Day. The name Jesus appears in isolation nine times, as I said, three times in apposition with the Son, uh, with Christ, and in apposition with the Son of God once. Jesus appears one other time in Hebrews 4.8, where it refers to Joshua of the Old Testament. We could say he was the lesser Jesus, or the lesser Yeshua. But that makes a total of 14 references to the name Jesus. And therefore, he is the greater Joshua. In any case, the name Jesus is used with greater frequency than the title Christ in the homily. What does this do for us? It serves to emphasize that the expected Messiah, Hebrews one and 11.26, is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. More precisely, as in John's Gospel, jesus is the christ the son of god the idea emphasis the idea here of emphasis may be expressed this way in a question and answer a simple q a who is the christ the messiah answer jesus that's the emphatic answer in january of 1972 i asked the question that consumed me quite literally i asked what is reality The answer came and has always been, Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and to the endless tomorrows of the ages, Hebrews 13.8. In many ways, that is a culminative verse in Hebrews. Karl Barth did about a 200-page, which I think is about a 200-page exposition on Hebrews 13.8 in volume 3.2 in his church dogmatics the emphasis falls on the name Jesus in Hebrews a name which also appears in isolation in the early Christian hymn which Paul makes the centerpiece of his epistle to the Philippians in Philippians 2 10 it says so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow we may also ask who is the son in whom God spoke definitively and with ultimacy in these last days the son in whom God spoke definitively in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, is Jesus, in Hebrews 2, 9, who tasted death for everyone. The disciple whom Jesus loves in the fourth gospel, whom we call the fourth G, lays heavily, heavy emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, he delineates his whole purpose for writing the gospel in John twenty thirty one. These, that means these signs in John 20:30, are recorded so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus, Jesus, is the Messiah, Christos, the Son of God, Hohios Tutheu. And so that, believing, you would be having life. That means experiencing the life of the coming age, future world. That experience is in the believing, as Romans 15, 13 also says. In his name, emphatically, in his name, ento onamati, ento onamati autu as we have it in Hebrews 1.4. So let me read it with a couple of brackets in there that refer us to Hebrews. John 20.31, the whole purpose of John writing the fourth gospel, these signs, as you refer it back to 20.30, are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The Messiah, the Son of God. The Son of God is also found in Hebrews 1.2 and 4.14 centrally. And so that believing... You would be having life. That means experiencing the life of the coming age, future world. In Hebrews six five, in His name, en to onamati out to the name above all names in heavens and earth in the age, the present age and the age to come. Ephesians 1, 20, 21. Hebrews one four, name that's above all the name, the angels' names. So let's look again at a compact translation of hebrews 9 24 to 26 where we are in our ongoing line upon line exegetical study of hebrews theological exegesis of hebrews hebrews 9 24 this is what we have so far for the messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands a mere replica of the true but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of god for us not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another. For if that were the case, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now, once at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, he has been manifested." Here we go into another gear. We shift to another gear in our message called the covenantal application, the application of Hebrews to the covenant. The sunteleia or the termini of the ages in Hebrews 9.26, indicates the point of termination of the evanescent age of the old covenant, And the point of origin of the everlasting age of the new covenant. Sun Telia then introduces a terminus ad quo and a terminus ad quem. A terminus ad quem is the point of termination of the old covenant era. The terminus a quo is the point of origin of an everlasting new covenant age, an age that never ends. This covenantal application runs throughout the central section of Hebrews. Really, being touched on in Hebrews 7:22 a better covenant with better promises and then as we studied quite extensively Hebrews 8:8 to 13 the longest quotation of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament in the Septuagint Hebrews 8:8 to 13 and then at the close of this section again in Hebrews 10:15 to 18 that new covenant passage from Jeremiah 31:31 to 34 which is the Septuagint 38:31 to 34 is Alluded to. Jesus the Messiah appearing once at the Sunteleia, you'll see that in print, of the ages, refers to the event of his self sacrifice being precisely at the terminus or vanishing point of the age of the Old Covenant. The vanishing point in Hebrews 8 13. And the point of origin of the age of the everlasting New Covenant made effective by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 8, 8 to 12, 12, 24, and thirteen twenty. Again, it is the terminus ad quem, the limit to which the old covenant went. The cross was the latest possible date of the old covenant era, and it's the terminus ad quo, the date or point in eternity and time which marks the point of origin of the everlasting age of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, blood that is always efficacious for the forgiveness of the sins of many, that is, of all human beings over the course of all time. Now, having covered some ground we've already gone to, having introduced the covenantal application, let's go beyond. We're always going beyond, or we're not worth our salt. We may observe that the central section of Hebrews is bracketed by God's promise. You can check it out in your own Bible if you want. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses, adikias adikaios, and their sins I will never again remember, just as Jeremiah 3834 in the Septuagint has it, Jeremiah 31, 34 in the English translation has it. And he as also that's Hebrews 8 12, as also in Hebrews 10 17, he says, There are sins and lawlessnesses this time, not Adikia unrighteousnesses, but lawlessnesses. Anomion I will never again remember. Here again, we have an example of minute exegesis or grammatical analysis. In the second quote, Hebrews 10, 17, he uses the word anomion. You'll see this in in the pronoun. Rather than adikiais. By this, it is clear that the PT equates the plural unrighteousnesses with the plural lawlessnesses. Every sin, by definition, is an act of unrighteousness and or lawlessness. All sin is anomia, as John says it in 1 John 3, 5. It's a violation of what is right and just and a transgression of the law of God. That is, what God wills and demands. A transgression of or a violation of what God wills and demands. That's sins, Sins, unrighteousnesses, lawlessnesses. In both instances, the Lord promises never again to remember them. He does not say their unrighteous bodily act here. Or their lawless physical deeds. This allows the meaning to be more general than just acts or deeds. It can include unrighteous or lawless words Or speech acts, as some call them. Acts or deeds. It can uh, include also thought acts. We are responsible for what we think. We can think lawlessly, or we can think lawfully. Or we can have also sins of our intentions, all of which the Lord will never remember. He will never remember these unrighteousnesses or lawlessnesses, because God, what God wills and demands, he fulfills and gives in Jesus Christ and in the consummate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In both instances, the PT, the pastor-teacher, the pastor who teaches, quotes the Septuagint, Hoti ilios esome tes adikeias auton, kai ton hamartion auton, u me meneisto, And that means, again, I will be merciful to their sins, their unrighteousness rather, and their sins never remember again. You'll see all the Greek and all the English transliteration of the Greek words in the printout. So again, it says in Hebrews 8.12, Because I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, says, and their sins, remember, never again. This is exactly like the Septuagint of Jeremiah 38.34, which is the English 31.34. Exactly a quotation. And that's the last and arguably the climactic promise in the New Covenant. In Hebrews 10.17, however, which brackets on the other end this section, the quote is slightly amended. It says, Kai ton hamartion auton, Kai ton anomion auton, u me menestomai eti. And that means the pastor teacher uses the future passive indicative. Incidentally, I butchered the pronunciation of all those words, as I always do. He uses the future passive indicative of mimnescomai, rather than the aorist passive subjunctive. Now, what does that mean? Well, in both instances, he accentuates the Lord's doubly emphatic promise that he will never again remember their sins, but in the latter instance, Hebrews ten seventeen, he emphasizes even more strongly the promise to never remember their sins by wording the last promise this way, I will remember their sins never again, rather than saying, and remember their sins never again. which he says in Hebrews 8.12, after saying, I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses, almost as if the promise to never again remember their sins was an afterthought. So again, he said, I will remember their sins never again, rather than just adding the afterthought and remember their sins never again. So in Hebrews 8.12, it's, I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses and remember their sins never again. But in Hebrews 10:17 he deliberately makes very emphatic that last promise and makes it climactic for this whole section. I will remember their sins never again. It's very emphatic. This detail is extremely important because the fact that God will never remember their sins means that there will never be another annual sacrifice in which there is very definitely a remembrance of sin. For as Hebrews 10.3 says, and I'm giving us direction here into Hebrews 10. As Hebrews 10.3 says, in those, meaning the Levitical cultist sacrifices offered under the law, is a remembrance, anamnesis of sins every year. A remembrance of sins every year connected with what? The sacrifices of the old covenant in the Yom Kippur especially. The sacrifices offered under the law, Levitical cultists. By the Lord saying... I will never again remember their sins. He is effectively announcing or saying in effect, there will never be another annual occasion of sacrificing animals in which there is a remembrance of sins. In fact, the very last verse of this central section of Hebrews, which introduces the section beginning with having confidence by the blood of Jesus, and then the longest exhortation, among the longest exhortations in Scripture, in Hebrews ten, nineteen to 39, a wonderful passage, so relevant to our time. The very last verse of the central section of Hebrews says as much as this. Hebrews 10, 18. Now where there is forgiveness, aphesis, aphesis, of their sins, there is never again uketi, uketi, never again an offering for sin. Between these two quotations, the reason for God's homardiological amnesia is very clear. The blood of Jesus, his son, was poured out for the forgiveness of their sins and sprinkled for the purification of their consciousness from sins and from dead works. Not only that, the next lengthy hortatory section begins with a reference to confidence or assurance derived from, you guessed it, the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10:19, by which the aforementioned forgiveness was achieved. The pastor's reasoning is this. This is the pastor's reasoning for those of you that like to keep things simple. And the Bible doesn't do that, so sorry about your K-I-S-S. You can kiss your kiss goodbye. Keep it simple, stupid. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says some many things that are hard to be understood, as Paul did in 2 Peter 3.16. That's why you need a pastor who teaches, so that you can understand the intricacies of the word of God, which ultimately becomes the simplicity of the statement, reality is Jesus. But the pastor's reasoning is this. How can you my readers, return to the Levitical cultus and its repetitive offerings when there is no more offering, prosphora, for sin. There is no more offering for sin because the offering, prosphora, of the body of Jesus Christ, according to the will of God, was once for all, Ephapax. And through this once and for all offering by the will of God, we have been completely sanctified. Hebrews ten ten. Moreover, by one, one off, one once and for all offering, Mia Prosphora, he has made complete that's a key word in Hebrews regarding completion. Teleoken, teliochin. One, he has made complete the perfect active indicative form of the verb teleio. Those who are being sanctified in Hebrews ten fourteen, put the key word teleio, t e l e i o, o, omicron o, followed by the omega o. The key word. Teleiao with another keyword hagiazo we're doing exegesis here we're doing grammatical analysis h-a-g-i-a-z-o you'll see it in print add teleao with hagiazo and you have the term complete sanctification complete sanctification has been brought about by god in christ through his definitive and final unrepeatable one-off sacrifice even as in romans there is complete Justification by God in and through Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, complete reconciliation of the world to God in Christ. As justification through the judge being judged for all. Listen carefully to this because this is really a thesis. It's being born right now. Here's the birth process. As justification through the judge being judged for all is the subject of Romans. So sanctification through the priest representing all is the subject of Hebrews. And so, again, Hebrews 9.22, we go back to that key verse. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified by blood and without the pouring out of, of blood there is no forgiveness Jesus blood which is his life poured out in death the death of the cross the death of the cross as Philippians 2 8 puts it emphatically the blood of his cross which puts it which is put emphatically in Colossians 1 20 which he called my blood of the Covenant Jesus himself called it that, Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, 20. He adds the new Kine covenant. And you can confer with Hebrews 8, 8, 8, 13, 9, 15, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five 25 for all those statements. Once again, my blood of the covenant is blood poured out for many. In Luke 22, 20, he says specifically, for you. For the forgiveness of sins. Without the pouring out of blood. There is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. With the pouring out of blood. The blood of Jesus. Which is emblematic of his self-giving. His self-sacrifice. His giving of his own life. Of himself to death. The death of the cross. With that pouring out of blood. There is the forgiveness of the sins of many. Not just some sins of many people, but all sins of all people. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as he's called in Romans 1.17, 1 Peter 3.18, Acts 22.14 First John 2 1, Jesus Christ the righteous one is the propitiation. He was yesterday, he is today, he will forever be the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. First John 2-1 and 2. Again he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is a huge and enormously significant theme, especially for the central section of Hebrews, from 8.12, especially from 8.12 through 10.18. There is forgiveness of sins because there is the pouring out of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins without the pouring out of blood, just as there's no conveyance of inheritance according to a last will and testament metaphor or simile without the evidence of the death of the maker of the will remember Hebrews 9 15 and 16 with the pouring out of Jesus blood that is his life poured out in death there is forgiveness of sins and with the death of Jesus the testator or the maker of a will in testament as by an analogy or by a comparison The conveyance of the eternal inheritance or eternal life comes. For the wages of sin is death, that is, for all, for all sinned. But Jesus Christ is the only person, the only man who died the death, that is, the wages of sin for all. That's what it means that he died for our sins. He died, the only person who died The death that is the wages of sin is Jesus Christ. Therefore, the rest of us die as the natural end of our stint on earth as witnesses of his. So let me say it again. For the wages of sin is death, that is for all, because all sin. But because Jesus Christ died that one singular death as the wages of sin for all, then the gift of God is eternal life for all. That's the reasoning in Romans 6.23. Paul abbreviates his argument in Romans. That's why we have to fan it out. That's why you need, after I die, you need a shepherd who teaches, who specializes in teaching these things out. That's what they are left here for. Paul left it for us to teach out. God wrote the scriptures for us to teach out. There are many things said in a very abbreviated, powerful form that need to be taught, explained, explicated, exegeted, grammatically ana- analyzed, and brought to the body of Christ, the church, the new covenant community, so that they won't be subject to deceitful doctrines like the disappearance of many billions of people in a so-called rapture secret rapture in a disappearance so that they won't mix with the good news bad news so that they won't understand the universality and the eternality of the reality that is jesus christ and his self-sacrifice on the cross and his offering of himself and his constant intercession for the sins of the whole world and for all people of all time that's why you need to have the word of god taught and that's why you don't act and Live as a Christian without being constantly exposed to the accurate communication of the word of God from the original languages under the power of the Holy Spirit by an authorized communicator. And don't tell me you don't need a pastor. You need a pastor teacher. I'm only saying that as I come to the end of my career as a pastor. So don't think I'm trying to blow my own horn. It's too late for that. All right. Jesus experienced death, the wages of sin for everyone in Hebrews 2.9. And so as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive in Christ because Christ alone died the death that is the wages of sin. Where sin would have taken us all, it took Jesus and took him alone. He became sin for us and God condemned sin in his sinless flesh that we would be made the very righteousness of God in him. Ah, but there's bad news doesn't fit to this. Preacher, you better learn how to study the word of God and study it thoroughly and study it completely and not go on a wave of tradition. The forgiveness of sins, ten aphesin ton hamartion, is basic to the new covenant. It's basic to it. It's fundamental to it. Hebrews 8.12, Jeremiah 31.34, Septuagint 38.34. It is the foundational promise for Israel, the eschatological sons of the living God. Hosea 1.10, Septuagint 2.1 of Hosea, Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, both of which refer to redemption by the blood of Christ, that is, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.